It's time for your dose of Lamb Talks, the official podcast of Lambda Kappa Sigma. I'm Sarah Kaboyan. I am Justine Dixon. I am Letitia Warnick. We are pharmacists. LKS sisters. And your Lamb Talks hosts. Our mission is to elevate our sisters through the sharing of wisdom, knowledge, and experiences from our esteemed alumni network and other special guests as we discuss the challenges and opportunities we face within our careers and everyday lives. Tune in monthly to learn something new about the wonderful profession of pharmacy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Lamb Talks. Sarah and Letitia here. Another very exciting episode. How are you doing today, Letitia? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. One quick story that I wanted to share with the listeners and I shared with you was I had like an interesting question from a patient recently that I wanted to let everyone know about. Someone, it's more about a resource I had to consult. So someone came up to my counter and said that they were traveling to, I can't remember which country, but it was a country in Africa. And they wanted to know about malaria prevention. And my initial thought was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, my gut reaction is like, I haven't looked up malaria prevention in who knows how long. And I'm like, you know, that initial panic of like, do I even know the answer to this? But then as I was talking to the patient and kind of gaining my bearings and took a minute, I was like, okay, Sarah, let's think about this. I remembered, okay, Sarah, like go through the steps, the CDC go to the CDC. I found my way to the yellow book, which is the guide for all of this Mm -hmm. about travel medicine. So moral of the story is I'm reminding all of you about the yellow book and I had to actually consult it in practice. I think that's an excellent reminder. I feel like that's also a really good NAPLEX question or maybe even MPJE. Excellent reminder for everyone because that's something, unless you use it regularly, you probably don't use it all that often. Yeah, it wasn't something, you know, like I was telling you guys the story, it didn't come initially to mind. Maybe some of you right off the spot were like, yellow book, you know what that, you know, as pharmacists, those are kind of the reactions we need to have, but you know, sometimes it's okay if it takes you a minute to come up with the resource or it's okay that I didn't know the answer off the bat about the malaria prevention. I knew how to guide the patient to find the answer. So I printed out the resource. I said, of course, talk to your doctor a little bit more about it, but this is the resource you you both can consult. And he felt much better, I think, about what he was looking at and he went on his way. But with government agencies, I think this leads us into our guest for the day. Yes, Yes. our guest for this episode is Keely Ireland, and she has a very interesting background. She is a pharmacist, went to pharmacy school, and also has her law degree, which is really exciting. And then she also recently just completed a medical cannabis certificate. So you guys, she has her bachelor's of pharmacy based on when she went to school. She has her JD or Juris doctor, so her law degree. And then she, as Letitia, she also has a master's. She currently works for CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. So she's down in Maryland for that. And she took the time to join us on Lamp Talks. We'll jump right into it. Here's our conversation with Keely Ireland. So we're here with Keely Ireland, a sister who is a member of Epsilon Alumni Chapter. She attended pharmacy school at URI, so as a collegiate in Xi chapter, and we're very excited to talk to her about all things pharmacy, law, and medical cannabis. So welcome, Keely. Thanks for joining us today. 
Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. You're one of the sisters who has been around for a long time. You've been really involved in a lot of things. We're so excited to learn more about you one-on-one and get to know some stories about these unique, I'd say, pathways in pharmacy. So thank you. Yes, definitely. There, yeah, I've, I've kind of gone off on a different tangent than I ever expected I would. So. so yeah, I guess that's kind of the top of the question is kind of what was your order of things? So you have your law degree, you have a pharmacy degree, you have your master's in medical cannabis. Can you kind of talk us through like going from high school into college or when you decided what role you wanted first and how you kind of obtained these various Yeah. Um, In high school is when I decided I wanted to go to pharmacy school because I liked chemistry a lot. And my guidance counselor kind of did the little thing in the computer and beep, boop, boop. It's like, oh, here are jobs involving chemistry or chemistry degrees or, and it said pharmacy. And I was like, that has to do kind of with medicine, but not really all the blood and gore of it. So I was like, I like that. That sounds good. Went to school for pharmacy. And then during pharmacy school in pharmacy law class, Well, I actually had an externship with CVS at their headquarters in Rhode Island with the director of government affairs, I believe it was, and got to kind of work with their legal department and this department. So I thought about why isn't there a field for people with their pharmacy degree and law degree. And so after pharmacy school decided that I did want to go to law school, but waited a few years, got my feet wet, you know, in pharmacy and worked there for a little bit before I decided that I could go back to school because I was pharmacy school really tired me out. <laughs> I was like, I need a break. <laughs> and so then I went to law school after about I'd been out and practicing for about seven years before I went to law school and did that in over four years, which is considered a part-time program, even though you're taking about four classes a semester, which you're only one class away from being full-time. So for that to be considered part-time at, at the time, I thought was funny. And then I was still working full-time at Walgreens while I went through law school. So I worked the evenings or overnights for the first year of law school and then went to day shift floating my last three years of law school so I could kind of do the evening program a little bit better. And then I just finished the master's program for the medical cannabis degree just um, last year. Been a while since I got my law degree. I got that in 2005. And then now went back, decided to go back to school one more time and got my master's. So I feel like I've got all three areas, bachelor's, master's, and juris doctorate. (laughs) It's kind of like an EGOT, but for a pharmacist. (laughs) Amazing. I like that thought. Yeah. It's like an EGOT, but for pharmacists. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Heard it here first, folks. So working full-time while at Walgreens, was Walgreens where you were right out of school or no, were you at actually, CVS? And then- I was with CVS right when I got out of school. I interviewed with them up at Rhode Island and they were looking for a pharmacist to fill in the Virginia and Maryland areas. And I knew back then I knew I wanted to go to law school eventually and figured it would be good to be near DC. I don't know why I thought that at the time. I just thought being in the legal perspective would be near DC, even though I didn't want to go into politics. So I'm not quite sure my train of thought with picking something down here eventually. So I ended up moving to Maryland, working for CVS for about five years, then went to 
Sinai Hospital for a year and then went to Walgreens for six years before I ended up at the hospital for two and a half years and then went to CMS. So worked for about 14, 14 to 15 years on the bench or in retail and hospital combined. Can you describe what it was like working and then also trying to pursue an additional degree? You have a law degree and then you also did this medical cannabis program. What was it like trying to balance that? It really makes you consider time management a lot more. Like I know in pharmacy school, I'll be honest, I was not a good studier. I did not have a system down. I didn't have anything like any kind of system that would be organized enough to help me with my studying. So I had horrible study habits back then. And in law school, I had to kind of go a different mindset because you're going from science, which is a lot of black and white memorization get it done type thing to the law, which is you want it to be black and white, but there's a lot of gray areas. And then you have to kind of write it out and explain both sides. And it was just, it was kind of a hard first year, but I kind of worked it so that I was working overnight. So I'd work one week on one week off. And I had evening classes, which went from six to like 8.30, 8.30 or nine. And then I'd work from 10 at night till eight in the morning. So the first year it was rough because I would go wake up and go to um, school first and then work and then get home in the morning and I would try to study but I'd be so tired that I would just sleep until I had to get up and go to class again. After my first year, I worked over the summer still at Walgreens and we ended up switching so that I could work day shift and go back to school at night for the evening program. But I ended up floating at different stores to help them out. And that just kind of made it a better scenario for me because I could, you know, get the overlap. And if I needed to leave early, it wasn't a problem or just, you know, on the days where I wanted to get to school a little early, depending on where I was. So I clocked in and out and it was, it was a good situation for the last few years of school. Was it more of a per diem role as opposed to being like on staff? I was still considered um, full time. Okay. But, nice. I would, but it would be more of like, um, instead of being salary at one store, I'd have to clock in, but it was still, I would still get 40 hours a week. So that's probably good for like thinking for someone in school, like you still get the benefits, you're still yeah sustaining salary, but and especially because you're that much age-wise older. So those are important things to have too. Exactly. It was good to have the benefits at the time. So for someone who is potentially assessing a law degree after going to pharmacy school, you kind of talked about how you did, I guess, maybe like a non-traditional law program where you did it over four years and Mm -hmm. are most like traditional law programs too? Most traditional law programs are three. And then, but there's a lot more universities now that offer an evening program that's part-time. So it takes an additional year. You can get out in like three and a half years, maybe three, if you do summers. And I only did like one class one summer. And then after that, I didn't do any summers because sometimes what you're looking for is either to work in a law firm or you're taking classes. So that's why a lot of people have to weigh that out for them. Okay. Because I guess I was thinking kind of like, are we like shooting for like the L Woods Harvard Law? Not that we don't want to go to like a good law program, but like what kind of things should we be looking for or what would you I recommend? Think, yeah. Well, um, it depends if there's like a specific 
type of law that you want to go into, you can look at that. Because at first I was looking at um, health systems or health administrative law. It was what I looked at for programs. And then I decided on um, University of Baltimore because they did have that evening program and they were close. They didn't have, I decided that I wanted to go into patent law for pharmacy. So I was kind of heading that way. I was taking patent law classes, but then (laughs) I didn't finish getting my focus on patent law because I decided too much paperwork. Like it was just going to be too much. Oh my God, the paperwork having to do with patent law. I know we hear about like, it takes like how many trucks of paperwork to get something approved or the patent. Yes. Yes. And then I would also have to try to get licensed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in order to practice patent law. So I was like, and I looked at that and I was like, nope, I'm good. I'm so good. I will I will take just my regular law degree and go with that and figure out what I want to do from there. So when by the time I actually got to law school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But if you have an idea ahead of time, you can look for certain schools that might specialize in that or have a specific area dedicated to that. If you don't, then you just kind of want to look for what's in your budget. If you have a budget for it, if you want to do the part-time program, like I did where I went evenings only and maintain my full-time role working, you can do that. Or if you want to if you could take the time off, however you want to do it, work part-time or not work at all and go full-time to law school. And that takes three years. You might be able to get out in two and a half. It just kind of, I think, depends on what you're looking for. What strategies would you recommend to our student listeners as they take their first law exam or those preparing for the MPJE? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I was trying to think of that when when I saw the, you know, the proposed question, I was like, hmm, what would be good? I because honestly, because I've I've taken that law exam and recently because <laughs> and there it seems as though they concentrate sometimes in a certain area on part of the exam and, but then they'll switch it up the next time around. So I, it's like, you need to know everything, which is unfortunately, I hate to say that, but yeah, you have to cover all the subject matter. If you can definitely do a review course to help you kind of hone in on what you need to focus on, because I know the legalese is sometimes really hard to understand. And always remember that the stricter law is the one that prevails federally versus state. So that's a good point, because I always forget about that. Yeah. Have you assisted in writing any of the law exams? No, I haven't. But when I was working in policy in CMS, I did help write some regulation there regarding transition fills. Hmm. I don't know if you recognize that. I used to be able to recite the regs, the statute number right off the top of my head all the time because that's how much I worked on it. I helped um, extend the transition fill policy because at first, when we first wrote it, it was just regarding like, I believe a 30-day supply or if you're in a long-term care facility, like a 90-day supply, but we helped kind of elaborate on that so that it has different parts now. I think there are four or five different parts. So I helped write that and take comments from industry leaders and advocates and patient advocacy groups and things like that. When they make comments regarding regulations and policies are coming into effect, it was it was pretty interesting to do. That sounds like it's a really unique path that when I think about being a pharmacist and not anything that I would think of that you have the opportunity to do, but since you have this law degree, opens up some different doors and some different opportunities for you to put your skills to work. What are some of the opportunities that having the law degree has allowed you to do? 
Yeah, because I went from working in policy, I worked in policy for a year and a half and helped write that transition fill and helped learn a lot about policy and reg writing. But after that, transferred over to compliance on Medicare Part D formularies. And that's when something was brought up to my level of recognition, I guess you could say. That's usually when an insurance company had screwed up on a pretty broad level to Medicare beneficiaries regarding the Part D formularies. And I would write compliance letters and give them written action plans if it got to that level to the insurance plans that would, you know, have a screw up of like, say, it could be anywhere from like 500 patients to 10,000 patients would get something like, say, something on the formulary got denied when it's blatantly on their formulary. Something like that was what I did for the next seven years, eight years before I transferred to where I am now in um, Office of Hearings and Inquiries. And I really did like my time in compliance too, because that was interesting trying to see how the plans would interpret the law on their end regarding the formularies and how you'd have to kind of let them know, no, this isn't the intent of that regulation. This is the intent of that. So let's, let's kind of work on where your thought process is here and make sure that the beneficiary is the one that's getting the most benefit out of this. If somebody was trying to align themselves and say, oh, this might be the path for me, What are some of the skills or the strengths that you use in your everyday activities? Ask a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to make mistakes Mm -hmm. and own up to your mistakes. If you did make a mistake, you know, always fess up to it and apologize and hopefully learn from it. But definitely ask a lot of questions and don't be afraid to because that's one great way of learning is obviously asking a lot of questions. When I was in with compliance, that's what I had to do is ask a lot of questions of of people that were compliance officers with insurance plans and check with them to, to get the whole story behind something where they fell out of compliance with a certain regulation and see if we could get them back to where they needed to be. Are compliance officers typically lawyers as well? No, we had few lawyers or a few JDs. It would depend because not everyone passed the bar. Some people would just graduate from law school, but never took the bar exam. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had those. We had a couple people with business degrees. and But we did have mainly attorneys because if it gets appealed up or if the insurance company has so many compliance actions against them, it can result in legal action. And we would have attorneys that would work with the Office of General Counsel when that would happen, where we'd have to take legal action against an insurance plan. I didn't have to do that. That wasn't my position, luckily, because I would have been panicked. I don't having to walk into a courtroom and play like law and order. I'm like, we did that in law school and that freaked me out enough. important to note too, though, is that it's not like law and order what you see on the TV, you're right. definitely in a different type of you applying the skills and the knowledge of law in your job. It's, it's not like what you see on TV, right? It's a lot of drafting legal documents, like what would be like the first level of compliance would be a notice of non-compliance, and then it would be a warning letter. And then it would be a warning letter with an action plan. And then it would be a corrective action plan. Those are the steps up in the process for compliance. 
And it's, that's what we would be doing. And then once it got to the higher level, then that's where you can start seeing um, monetary penalties being involved. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, no courtroom for us. It was never, we had one attorney who was our lead attorney that may have to show up to court once in a while or show up for the ODC, which is the Officer General Counsel and show up with them regarding things. But no, it was nothing like that where we, you know, go into a courtroom and argue it out. In your role, do you collaborate with other healthcare professionals? Well, when I worked compliance, yeah, I would definitely be working with, I would be working with, there was a group that worked on formularies itself and getting the plans formularies in and approving them for each plan year. And there would be certain compliance issues that I would work with them on and they would give me the data from it for the plans. And so I would be collaborating with a lot of pharmacists actually on data analysis um, regarding insurance plans and what they do to the formulary for certain aspects of it, like transition fills, if they had an opioid plan in effect for their management, you know, their medication management program. Those are a couple of things I can think of that we had actual compliance matters for that we would do every year on a regular basis that there are certain ones that I had to do. Now I'm a federal hearings officer. I'm still considered a health insurance specialist, but we're federal hearings officers and I work for marketplace or healthcare.gov. And I get to, I don't collaborate with healthcare people as much now, more it's other attorneys on hearings. And so it's, it's definitely a different world than what I'm used to, but I'm still considered the Medicare and Medicaid subject matter expert because I've got that, I've had the background in Medicare. Can you tell us a little bit more about that role? Yeah, maybe a little bit about like what marketplace is too. Yes, the marketplace is healthcare.gov or the marketplace exchanges or also Obamacare for a lot of people that will recognize that. And what I do now as a federal hearings officer is when something happens to people that are lower income, they get what's called an advanced premium tax credit and the cost share reduction, which brings down their insurance premiums and also helps with their co-pays with doctor's visits and pharmacy. So when these people lose their tax credit or their cost sharing reduction for various reasons, there's quite a few reasons that they could lose it for. There'd be, they haven't produced their tax return in a couple of years. They said that they are married filing separately and you have to be married filing jointly to be eligible for tax credits. You can't be on Medicaid and you have to be at 100% or above the federal poverty level to be eligible. So sometimes their income will indicate that they fell below that. See, I'm babbling. Sorry. No, okay. This is important. Like it okay. helps us. Like I think people on the bench kind of understand what really these people's lives and yeah. what they have to do to qualify yeah. for these things. Right. So when, when they've appealed losing the tax credit or losing, sometimes they'll lose enrollment in the marketplace, they appeal it and it'll go through an advanced and formal resolution counseling or committee first. And they decide whether or not that gets denied or if it gets overturned and they get the benefit back because of what they say, like they could have just failed. They checked off the wrong box when they were going through open enrollment through the online portal. And, you know, it's not like insurance is an easy thing to really know. And then you're, you know, you're going through it by yourself and having to put in your tax information and insurance. It's just, 
to me, I, I'm, I'm so impressed with people that can understand it both. But when they lose it, their tax credit or the cost sharing reduction, it gets appealed. And I'm one of the hearings officers that will listen to them and tell them, okay, so we need to see your tax return, or we need to see, we just need to see the birth certificate because they just had a baby and they want to enroll the baby into the marketplace, things like that. And so I, now I interact with people again, or patients again, which is great. And then I usually have a people that write the briefs for me. So I don't really have to do that anymore as a lawyer. So someone's doing that for me. It's like, I've got people. <laughs> and then we kind of review what my decision will be in the case of whether or not we uphold the decision to not give them their tax credits back based on, you know, whatever reasoning or whether they're going to overturn it and grant them back and why. So it sounds like this job, you have to really rely on like really strong ethics to appropriately assess and be fair and consistent. I hear a lot of stories because, you know, at the pharmacy side of me gets it when I see that they're on immunosuppressants and they need to have their medications or, you know, they've got cancer and need chemotherapy. And all of a sudden they find out that they don't have insurance anymore. And I'm just like, you know, I understand that part of it. So that's good. But at the same time, I've got to go by what's in the law and whether or not they're meeting the standard of the law so that they can get, be part of the program and get their tax credit. So it's, it's sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, what the patient's going or the person is going through the appellant not patient, but you feel like they're patients and that you just like, oh, I'm so sorry. In your role, have you done any training? The theme that we've had on the podcast and with LKS is like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Have you done training on that to help further your role? Well, we have a diversity type training that we have to go through at work every year. And yeah, I have done that. And yeah, I haven't furthered my role in that end because I'm not quite sure where I could institute that or or help in my area right yet. Because I've, well, I've been there three years, but in government time, that's like a day. So because <laughs> it's like <laughs> people are there. It's like you hear people say, oh, I've been here for 40 years. And you're just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've been here for five. I feel like it's nothing. But yeah, I have done some training, but I haven't thought about how that would be brought into where I'm at right now. So how did you come into this role? How does somebody acquire being eligible to apply for this type of position? As a federal hearings officer, it is good to have your law degree. I was on what's called a detail, but it's more like a temporary assignment or an internship where my old position, when I worked in compliance, they let me go into a different department and work there for four months and kind of learn a different field or a different position and you know, work there for a little bit, get the feel of it. And sometimes a position will open up from it. And this happened, I got the temporary position about, it was November of 2019. So right before COVID and the whole agency pretty much shut down (laughs) and everyone worked from home. And this position is a work from home position, which was great. And they kept extending my detail for another four months and another four months until finally they asked me if I wanted to stay full-time or yeah, stay as a full-time employee at an FTE. And I said, uh, yes, please. Cause I, I enjoyed it so much with federal hearings officers. It's good to have a legal background. And if you've 
gone on any kind of, I would say, mediation or arbitration, that would be a good background to have to get into this this aspect of where I am now. It's interesting to hear this unique job path. I don't necessarily think we always think about this. You you have your pharmacist trained, Mm -hmm. you practiced as a pharmacist, and you know by taking this additional pathway, this job description is definitely not the norm for what we typically see. So this is really interesting to have insight into this. Trust me, when I first wanted to go to law school and was thinking of health administration or something with health information, I had wanted to work for Walgreens or CVS at the time in their legal department. And when I got out of law school, everyone I knew in law school was going into government work. And I'm like, why would you go work for the government? I have, I don't understand. It's no, yeah, government. And then when my friend told me about an opening and I submitted my resume and I got a call back on a position and got in there, I was just like, why haven't I been working for the government all this time? It's great. Oh my God. Because going from retail and hospital to where I'm at now, when I could go take a bathroom break and not have someone bother me, or I could could actually have a lunch break and no one's, you know, saying, oh, sorry, I'll wait till you finish chewing that before I ask you a question. It was a big change. It was a scary change too. Not something I could get used to for, it took me a few years to get used to it. This might be a kind of a weird question, but so are you considered like a government employee if you're working for Medicare and CMS? Yep. CMS so, is part of health and human services. So it's federal government. So like if like the government shuts down or something, does like your office technically shut down and things like yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, we had um, when Obama during his time, we had a shutdown of two weeks. And that was that was it was kind of it was fun, but scary because you didn't know how long it was going to last. And you didn't know if you were going to get paid for the time that you were out. And it was just and then you're like, how am I going to make bills? And, you know, they but most of the people had been through it before. And they kind of knew it's like, okay, here's what you need to do. You know, unemployment, get that ready or get this done. And and so luckily, my boss and my coworkers kind of helped me through it. And luckily it was only two weeks, but still it's, it was a scary time not knowing how long it was going to be for. And so every time they threaten to shut down <laughs> with yeah. Congress, it's always like, wow. Yeah. The implications are major. Yes. Before we transition, one more thing, I guess, kind of just struck me was, you know, we were talking about how you worked full time while going to law school, but that also meant you had to study for the LSATs to get into law school. And then you also studied for the bar while also working full time. And then you also had to pay for all of this while working. And I'm, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like then you probably were also dealing with like paying for pharmacy school and law school, like in that transition. Can you kind of give some guidance for someone who might be interested in thinking about this and some of the nuances around all of that? Well, that's another good thing to probably look at is how much the law school costs, because that's one one of the things that took me to University of Baltimore is because it was definitely less expensive than some other schools. But I was able to pay for it on my own the first two years because during the summer, I would work insane amounts of hours working for Walgreens. I would get as much overtime as I could and they let me. And so I was able for the first two years of law school pay out of pocket and not have to take a loan. And then the governor increased in-state tuition by I think 150% the next year. And so I had to take out loans from my last two years of law school and I'm still paying on those. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's, 
things you have to take into consideration. Like, do you want the loan on there? Do, can you afford to do it without, you know, without taking out loans? Can you still work and pay for it while you're working? There's things, yeah, you have to take that into consideration, which I don't know if I fully did at the time. <laughs> no, it's fair. Sometimes yeah. you want to just jump into it, which is totally respectable, but yeah. So now we can kind of transition, I think, where did the interest in the medical cannabis come from? And how did you get involved in all of that? Well, it first stemmed from when my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and she was down in Florida, and she had actually tried to get her medical card. And I think she didn't end up getting it. They were backlogged pretty bad at the time. So her friends were kind of (laughs) sneaking her (laughs) brownies with cannabis in it. Those are good friends. And kind of helping her that way. And that I know that there were a few times when she had anything with cannabis in it, it would help prolong the length of time between her when she'd have to take like her Oxycontin. And that really helped because the Oxycontin made her really groggy and kind of knocked her out. And she didn't really like that. She wanted to be able to be up and functioning and talk to her friends. And so whenever she had the brownie, she would only take a little bit of the brownie, obviously not great dosing there, (laughs) not accurate, but she would take a little piece and that would kind of help prolong it. And so that kind of got me interested in seeing about cannabis, obviously for cancer, which I think everyone, you know, in pharmacies probably heard of that cannabis can help people with after with chemotherapy induced, you know, nausea and vomiting. And so I started looking at it from there and that just kind of piqued my interest. So I looked into it and and realized that Maryland is a medical state and I actually applied for my card and I have it. And so that was, I was able to get some tincture and help my mom and use that instead of because she had throat cancer so she couldn't smoke it because it irritated obviously irritated and burned her throat so that wasn't a good idea so I had given her a tincture that she could put under her tongue and so she was using that to help with the pain medication and the pain meds and also helped with her nausea too so it was it was really good that way and then I think in 2020 or 2019 I heard about the program coming to University of Maryland and so I was getting excited Excited and I kept looking into it, kept looking into it. I didn't get in the first year that Neil, like when Neil got in, I didn't get in that year. And I was really bummed. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't get in. And then the next year I did. And I was like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> but that's when I realized that cannabis helps more with a lot more than just cancer and HIV and AIDS and wasting and things like that. There's so much more that it can help. And it was a really interesting program and really think it can help pharmacists in treating patients with different disease types and different disease conditions. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like? What would somebody, if they're looking to do a program like that, what would they expect to talk about? Well, you learn about the plant itself. Um, You learn about how it's female plants or female cannabis plants are the ones that have the buds and the the flowers growing in the leaves that you want to make into cannabis products, not the males. You learn about endocannabinoids and how they're all throughout the body and how many the body actually has. And that, so endocannabinoids are natural in your system and are naturally produced and how CBD affects it, how THC affects it and how it works for different disease types. We learned about multiple sclerosis. We learned about chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting 
HIV, AIDS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. And then you could also kind of look into it and do research projects where you were, we were, what was I'm trying to think. We had a project our second year where we had to develop a presentation or like an education series or an education seminar to a group of people. And you had to identify the party who you were presenting to and what the subject matter was going to be. And then you'd have to go through the presentation. And so that was our second year of the program. And that was one of the things that made you, I guess, kind of put all of your education into the final product. And that was really great because the classmates that I worked with, we developed it for a group of anesthesiology residents up in a hospital in New Jersey because there was an anesthesiology nurse that was in our group. Ray had been talking about it to her doctors there. And so we developed it for her to present to them. And I thought that was great. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping to kind of use it for something else. So one thing that comes to my mind, and granted, I know that we see the benefits of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana continues to be legalized in the States. But going from a law background, which previously up until very recently, the law very much restricted marijuana use to now you're really kind of taking it in stride like how has that perspective for you or what what was it like it is interesting because yeah because it's still illegal federally because it's still a you know schedule one drug so it's considered of no medical medicinal value but there's so many actual groups and associations like there's the international society of cannabis pharmacists which I'm a part of now. So learning things like that, there's also an international like cannabis lawyers, you know, something like that. I don't know the name of that one, but I'm a part of there's the the group normal Americans for safe access, which is to help, you know, people get safe and legal access to cannabis. They work a lot with veterans associations and um, veterans groups. But yeah, it was it was a matter of being, I guess, realizing that the state laws are different and looking at it from each state law instead of the federal law, even though I work for a federal government agency, like I'm hoping that the FDA and DEA will one day reschedule it or deschedule it. And I would like to be part of that writing policy if that happens, but I don't know. So in the meantime, I'm like looking at the state levels and seeing what there is there. And like, I also look at, there's a part of me that looks at compliance for that. Like, is there an avenue for me to work compliance with cannabis companies and where that would go? So that's, that's where my thought process has been. And that's, but that's where it started with wanting to look into cannabis more and then being able to take this master's program and now trying to figure out where I fit in after that. That makes sense. Like you have the knowledge to back you up so when people might look at you you can be like no like look there's yeah and it's helpful and it's not just something that we formally know about there's very much benefit to it that feels like a very like pipeline question like things in the future what we can look forward to yes awesome and I really like this too because this is a very non-traditional path again, that you're taking, again, who would have thought that you could write policy for a medical marijuana company or how you could potentially be involved in the descheduling or rescheduling of a product, right? Like that it's, it's a really interesting path. I don't even know if I've ever, I've never thought of that before. That's really exciting. 
or that we have cannabis companies and a registered pharmacist could be involved in that. Yes. Well, there's also at dispensaries in some states, it's required for them to have a pharmacist at the dispensary, at least part time so that, and they have some sort of certification where they help patients, you know, pick what terpenes are they're looking for, or what kind of chemovars or or terpenes that they're looking for and what they're using that to treat. So I know there's like Pennsylvania has pharmacists and dispensaries part-time. I believe Minnesota does. I'm not sure what other states, but I do know of those two that have it. And I know of a couple of dispensaries in Maryland that have pharmacists as their clinical director. And at this time, I would like to give a special shout out to one of our previous episodes where we talked to a pharmacist practicing in medical marijuana. That's episode 14 talks about a budding industry. If anybody's interested, that was released last year. So yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. Again, I think that's a really great opportunity pointing out these non-traditional paths we have as pharmacists. That pharmacy degree can open up a lot of doors that we don't even realize are there, right? It's really something that if you think of it and there isn't something there yet, you can develop it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have a pharmacy degree, there's so many different pathways that you can take that you probably haven't even thought of that are out there just waiting to be explored. How inspiring. Yeah, I like to tell pharmacy students is to try to think of if there's something that they're interested in that they could tie pharmacy into to go look that pathway up first. Don't, you know, retail and hospital will always be there. The money will always be there. You know, start off something with that you were really interested in and look that way first. And you could probably develop a niche in it and go from there and, and just develop the job that you really love. So I guess kind of our next questions are going to be about LKS. Circling back, so you were at URI yep. and you joined Zai Chapter. Yeah. How did you learn about LKS? Who inspired you to join LKS? I think I saw they had like some sort of outdoor gathering outside of the College of Pharmacy. And so they had Kappa Psi and LKS there. And then they had Roke High and some other some other groups just kind of showing, you know, new students um, what kind of organizations they could join once they got into the College of Pharmacy or even before that, like if they were duly enrolled. And I remember meeting them at, L- at the LKS table and meeting the sisters that were there. And they told us about a gen- you know, general information meeting, I think, or general membership meeting. And so I went and met a couple people there that... I thought, okay, this is really good. I, you know, I like them. This seems to be a good crowd and we're all going into pharmacy. And they also talked about how they have study guides. They have study groups to help review. And I was like, oh, I I need that. I need that help big time. And so that's what motivated me to join was I think I just knew that I could not do the studying on my own and that I needed help. And I swear if it wasn't for LKS, I wouldn't have graduated pharmacy school. So they definitely helped me immensely. We love a sister study sesh. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So many of them. Did you learn anything from LKS involvement that you've been able to kind of carry like a life lesson, whether personally or professionally into current day or something that you might have picked up along the way? I know one thing was that there's always going to be an LKS member or sister somewhere where where you go that you can find or meet up with. Because I remember when I first was, well, getting ready to graduate and interviewing with CBS and the woman that I interviewed with was an LKS sister in college. And so we got to talking about that and I never even had an interview, really. We just talked about LKS the entire time and I was hired. (laughs) 
I was like, that was awesome. So I think from there, it's always about networking and just meeting people. And it's so good because you never know where you're going to end up. Like I said, in whatever pathway you take, you never know. You might find another LKS sister who's been there or done something similar to it that you can talk to and discuss it with, or you can brainstorm with others and see if this is, you know, where you want to go and you get definite support from everyone. Healy, I think that's a really great point to our students listening, even our new alumni or recent alumni, there's always an LKS sister out there. You might run across them. I feel like we're not as prominent as we maybe should be right. with it. You right. always come across them. And I think it's a really great connection to make if you have that opportunity. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit what's kept you involved in LKS after all this time? I think the friendships that I made at the conventions, because I may not be with Zy chapter anymore, and I'm with Epsilon alumni because I'm down in this area, it's still the fact that all the people that I met at the conventions during school and after school that keep me going that I want to see every year because it's like nothing's ever, there's been no time lost. You just pick up where you left off and that's it. It's great. That's what's so fun about conventions is just seeing the people that you saw last time or that you haven't really kept in contact with, but you know, and just picking up from where you left off and getting getting into tons of mischief too. I aspire <laughs> to be foof one day. A hundred percent. I think that's a good mantra. Yes. Like, <laughs> and that's such a great point. And I, I think you sum that up so nicely. That convention really is kind of like a marker of time, but also no time at all. Like it's yeah. just one flow and it keeps mm-hmm. us going. Exactly. It does. And it's really, it's kind of like when you're feeling it's the middle of summer and you're just not feeling it. You're not feeling that tie to LKS. And then you go to convention and it, it just reinvigorates you and just gets you motivated again to be in contact with and get motivated to be with LKS again and to do stuff for them. That's what I think. That's why sometimes you kind of get out of school and then you're in the summer and you're either working over the summer and you're thinking, uh, and then, but then you have the convention to look forward to no matter where it is that you're going to see somebody, you know, and hang, get to hang out with or make new friends too. And that's, what's the best part about it. And then it looks like from what I'm seeing on top of everything else that we talked about, you're also, is it, you're not just an avid runner, you're a triathlon, a triathlete. Yes. Yeah, I like to do triathlons. I don't know why, but I do. I like to torture myself with a swim bike run now and then. (laughs) That's a whole body everything. Yes. And I've been doing them since 2008. If you can believe that. Yeah. I just thought about that the other day going, oh my gosh, I've been doing that almost as long as I've been a lawyer. (laughs) Wow. Do you have like regimented schedule or is it more like once you book one? then you start training or are you like your yeah rep? usually yeah usually when I figure out what races I want to do then I get to, into planning out a workout schedule so that I'm doing the swim bike and run during certain days of the week and on the weekends I do a long bike and a long run because if I'm doing a longer distance triathlon that's what you got to do so a lot of time in the saddle a lot of time running oh my gosh How did you get into this? I was trying to lose weight this is when I was working at one of the hospitals. And I'd started walking and I was working out with a trainer and I decided, and I'd always seen the Kona Ironman championships on TV. And then I ended up seeing Iron Girl, which is an all women's triathlon and found out that they had one local to me and it wasn't sold out yet, which for a while there would go mad crazy and sell out within minutes, but it wasn't sold out yet. So I registered and used that as kind of like a goal to help me with working out and trying to lose weight. And my mom came down to cheer me on. And my boyfriend at the time met me at the finish line. (laughs) And it was my first one. And I remember 
riding it on a hybrid. I knew nothing. I still had sneakers on and, and all that. And, but it was, it was the most amazing feeling because you would see women of all ages and all sizes out there cheering on each other. So after that, I kept going and kept doing them. So I've been doing, yeah, I've been doing them for what, 15 years now. Wow. That's definitely an accomplishment for sure. They're, they're a lot of fun. I'm hope I'm um, eventually I'd like to do a full Ironman. I haven't done that yet. And that's, that's a long distance. That's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a 26.2 mile run. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I'm just like envisioning like that's like the Boston Marathon and then swimming part of the Charles River. And then you're also like including a bike ride along the S like because I'm from Massachusetts. So I'm just envisioning right. like all that in one. Not yep. that you're swimming the Charles, but I'm just by biking to Worcester and back. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. I'm from Worcester. That's so fun. So Keely, one of the last questions we have for you is you've highlighted a lot of unique opportunities you've had and unique pathways that you've taken throughout your career. What advice would you give to collegiates as they're trying to figure it all out or even maybe new alumni? I think the one piece would be what I said earlier is that if there's anything that you're interested in or any kind of little niche area where you haven't seen or heard of anyone working in that area, try to see what you can do to develop that, make that into your own. And you can start off with that and, you know, not, you can always fall back on hospital or retail, especially retail. Retail will always be there. Look into those specialty, unique types type jobs that, you know, veterinary pharmacy, there's, you know, there's different areas like that. There's, you know, home infusion, different areas, just try to try those out and see how you like them and try something different because you never know, it might lead into a great opportunity for you and might lead to your dream job. You never know. Do you consider yourself in your dream job? Right now? Yes. I think it's, it's really good. I'm really happy where I am. I think my ideal job would be definitely in somehow including pharmacy law and my medical cannabis degree. So I, I have yet to figure that out yet. So I'm, but I'm working on it, but yeah, right now I'm definitely happy and love my, this is my dream job. I think that's also like an important thing to point out that you've been practicing for a long time, but yet you still continue to set benchmarks for like the next thing. Like you're not placated and like, okay, like I know I'm just going to work until it's time for me to not work anymore. Like you're always constantly right. striving for something yeah. keeps things interesting and fresh. Exactly. I think helps with the brain too. Yes. Amazing. Is there anything else you want to share with us, Keely? Anything else we want to touch on? Anything you would like to share with the lambs? Oh, not that I can think of. Just looking forward to seeing everyone at convention this summer. Yeah. Here we come, Virginia. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm sure people will have questions for you and they can ask you in convention. Sure. Not a problem. They can ask me anytime. We'd like to thank Keely for joining us on this episode of Lamb Talks. She pointed out a lot of unique pathways and areas that you can practice in as a pharmacist. We hope this episode inspires you to explore your passions in the field of pharmacy. We'd also like to remind you all, if you haven't listened already, to listen to episode 19 about the chrysanthemum challenge. This was a really important discussion we had with Christine Perry about the initiatives surrounding the chrysanthemum challenge and how we are working to sustain the overall health of the fraternity. So if you haven't had a chance, please go learn more about the chrysanthemum challenge. And if you are able to do so, please go and donate to it so that we can be able to expand uh, fraternity initiatives. And with that, we thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you in two shakes of a lamb's tail.
If you or your local family farms lamb are interested in sponsoring an episode, please reach out to the podcast hosts or Aaron Regala at LKSHQ. As we work to produce meaningful content for our sisters, please send us an email at lambtalkspodcast at lks.org if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Additional updates can also be found on the LKS social media channels, Instagram at Lambda Kappa Sigma, Twitter at LKS1913, and Facebook. While you're enjoying Lamb Talks, don't forget to leave us a review, rate five stars, and share with fellow sisters, potential new members, and other pharmacists. We thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two shakes of a lamb's tail. <laughs>